Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Welcome back, weirdos, to episode 113 of History for Weirdos. Yay! We're excited to be back as always. As always, I'm very excited because it's Andrew's week and it's a special Christmas episode. It is. Hence, for those who are not seeing this on video, Andrew is wearing a Santa hat. Yeah, and if you are seeing this on a video, well, now you know. But before we jump into what I'm sure is an amazing episode that you've prepared for us, I wanted to take some time to say thank you because this is the first podcast episode we've recorded since my birthday. It was my birthday on December 14th and oh my goodness, (laughs) the messages, the comments, the well wishes were overwhelming in the best way. I felt so loved, you guys, it just made my day. Thank you. You guys rocked, honestly. I, I don't really have much more to add to that. Besides, yeah. like, you guys rocked, and you made Stephanie's day, like, that much more special. So, as her husband, I also want to say thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. Yes, yeah. Andrew can attest. I was, like, very weepy this birthday, but a good kind of weepy. I yeah. promise. It was fun <laughs> tears. <laughs> fun tears only. I know. I think it's a testament to, like, how much you've grown as well. Mm. That's so sweet of you to say. Not to get too sappy on a history podcast. Oh my gosh, but thank you. Yeah, I just felt really appreciative of this community and of course our friends and family. I felt like everyone just made me feel really loved. And in this crazy world that we live in, that's such a precious thing. So I don't take it for granted. It is. Yeah, thank you. Yes, and then one more announcement as well before we just dive right in. It's the end of the year, guys, and I just also wanted to say thank you because the amount that we've grown this year is is insane. The the weirdo family has like I think doubled since like a year ago. Um, yeah, and probably more honestly. So you guys really like from the bottom of our hearts, like thank you for all of that, and just thanks for making this community and like family so special. It yeah. really does mean like the world to us. It's. It's you all sharing the podcast with your friends, with your family, on your social media, you know, leaving those reviews, rating it, all of that stuff has gotten us to this point and we're so appreciative. We can't wait to see what 2024 brings. I know. And lastly, I just wanted to give a shout out to two special folks at Spotify who've been helping us a lot, Adele and Johnny. You guys rock. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Adele and Johnny. You guys are awesome. Well, now, without further ado, should I just dive right into the Christmas special, episode please, 113? Please do. Okay. So we're going to be covering a theme for this episode, mm-hmm. not necessarily just one specific event or person like we normally do. We're going to be covering real life Christmas miracles. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and if you don't remember, weirdos, last year... Our Christmas that. special was a whiskey <laughs> massacre, so I decided, you know what? Maybe I'll do the 180 this year. We'll do another tragedy for 2024. Yeah, we can alternate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And it's so funny. I forgot that you also ended up getting the like Christmas episode last year. I kind of like it. I like doing the Christmas. Oh, good. Because I wouldn't want to. I feel like that's that's perfect. Then. Pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so there are going to be three different stories um, that are all tales of Christmas time miracles um, in this episode. And so they are the ship of miracles in 1950. NASA's Apollo 8 mission in 1968, and we're going to be ending it with the Christmas truce of World War One in 1914. Oh, these all sound so good. Yeah, they are. I really like every single one of these stories. I might be a little biased, though. This sounds like such a nice, cozy Christmas story time, babe. This is actually so perfect. Yeah, this is very cozy, especially, for, I think, for history for weirdos. Yes, and <laughs> not to give too many spoilers, but... I'm pretty sure our first episode of the year involves murder. Of 2024. Yeah, of 2024. <laughs> Sorry, my I, I'm having an energy drink. So yes. my brain's jumping around <laughs> yeah, a little more. I know, you're, like, you're me normally yes, right now. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. I see why you get annoyed with me at times. I honestly. don't understand if that's a, like empathetic or a compliment or if it's saying that I'm annoying. I don't know, you be the judge, weirdos. <laughs> okay, so historical context. We're going to do the first one, US Miracle, the U.S. Ship of Miracles, 1950. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the Korean War because I think it will just make a lot of sense. Okay. So post-World War II, Korea was divided at the 38th parallel, the North under Soviet influence and the South under U.S.-led influence. Mm -hmm. uh, separate governments were established in 1948, so both sides claimed sovereignty over the entire peninsula, right? The North yeah. Koreans and then the South Koreans both did. Okay. And of course, this led to border skirmishes because of course it would, right? Yes. Well, this all escalates. And on June 25th, 1950, mm -hmm. North Korea invades South Korea. Oof. And they quickly captured Seoul and were pushing South Korean like forces all the way to basically the southeastern corner of the peninsula. Okay. And this was called like the Pusan perimeter. Yes, this is ringing a bell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you know a little bit about Korean history, especially like the Korean War, then this might ring a bell. Mm -hmm. So the United Nations led by the U.S. intervened in support of South Korea. And basically what happens here is the U.N. like U.S. forces push the North Koreans back into North Korea and actually push them so far north, they push them almost to the border with China. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild, wild ride here in 1950. Yeah. So then China invades on behalf of the North Koreans, which then causes the U.S.-led coalition to um, perform like what's called a tactical retreat out of North Korea. Ooh, this is messy. <laughs> yeah, it's really messy. And here's the thing like with the tactical retreat, you don't just like have the army retreating. There's also refugees fleeing that would oh. almost certainly um, die at the hands of the communist forces in the North. Right. And it's hard to know how many refugees there were because it seemed like different sources were saying different uh, amounts. Okay. But at very least tens of thousands, if not like a hundred thousand or more. Just civilians? Civilians. These are just refugees. Wow. So now enter the SS Meredith Victory. It was a United States merchant marine uh, ship mm -hmm. that was built during World War II. Basically, 
it's just a glorified cargo ship that was designed for a crew of 12 passengers. Remember that 12 passengers okay. in addition to its normal like crew. Okay. Which is like, I don't know, roughly 20. Uh-huh. So you could have like a staffed crew plus 12 extra. Exactly. Okay. So maybe like it's designed for like 32 uh-huh. people, I'd yeah. say. I think that's a good guess. Yeah. And so on December 20th, 1950, mm-hmm. it arrived at the North Korean port city of Huangnam. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I probably butchered that, but I'm, I did my best. Good. No, I think that sounded good. <laughs> so they arrived with a hundred other U.S. ships to pick up troops, supplies, ammunition, and take them to the South Korean ports of Busan and Gyoji Island. Um, rescuing refugees was not part of this plan whatsoever. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, because there's so many. But thousands of people started getting loaded up onto the ship because they were the um, <sighs> the crew was just like we're not going to leave these people behind. Oh my gosh! So the process took days because there were so many people. But finally, on December 23rd, the ship. The SS Meredith Victory disembarked with over, get this, 14,000 Korean refugees. 14,000 when it was supposed to have maybe 32 people on it total? Yes. <gasps> so, yeah, for there's supposed to be 12 passengers, designed for 12 passengers. There's 14,000 oh instead. Oh, my gosh. Like, and this is on Christmas Eve Eve. This is on Christmas Eve Eve. Wow. So... Again, like, I can't state this enough. Like, this was only designed for 12 passengers, but there's 14,000 of them I don't even understand how you could do that. No, I I had to double, triple check this figure because I was like, this is wrong. This is so absurd and Yeah, like, it sounds like a legend almost. Right. Mm -hmm. You look into it, it's like, no, this is actually correct. And it's wild because I had never even heard of this before I researched it. I've never heard of this before. I know, and it, it is truly... A Christmas miracle. Oh. <laughs> so refugees were just like basically crammed between vehicles, boxes of ammunition and supplies. Uh, the crew was able to fill like five entire cargo holds and the entire main deck with all of the Korean uh, civilians fleeing persecution, basically. Oh, my goodness. They arrived in Busan the next <sighs> day on Christmas Eve with not a single person like seriously wounded. Oh my gosh, everyone's okay. And this is despite everyone being just packed in like sardines in very wet conditions with freezing cold temperatures. Can you imagine the level of desperation you have to feel to to say, yes, this is a good idea for me and my kids or my parents or whatever it is? Yes, absolutely. Wow. And also get this, amazingly, five babies were born on this ship. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, during the three-day period. Oh, like, with all of them being born healthy. Wow, that we I, know of. Stress can induce labor. Yeah. So it's a, I'm I'm sure those women were under extreme stress, but that five babies. Five so they got babies. Five extra passengers. <laughs> yes, and. Uh, the ship would just basically remain in quarantine while um, uh-huh. just for a couple of days. Yeah. And they finally disembarked on December 26th at Gyoji Island, just south of the Korean Peninsula. Oh, my God. That must have felt amazing to get off that boat. <laughs> yes. Oh, and get this. Fun fact. Uh, the babies born on the ship were all named kimchi by the U.S. crewmen because they didn't know Korean. And so the, the first baby was Kimchi 1. No! Second baby, Kimchi 2. 
and so on and so forth to kimchi five and kimchi five still lives on gyoji island to this day more than 70 years later oh my gosh that's so sweet isn't that wild yes so let's get back to the ship though the ss meredith victory's evacuation is credited as the largest humanitarian rescue operation by a single ship in history i would think so not you american history or u.s history all history yeah because that's a lot of people they rescued yes and not only that, but of all the roughly like 200,000 people who were evacuated, every single one of them survived mm. that evacuation. Wow. It is the, or it was the largest seaborne military evacuation of civilians under combat conditions in American history. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I had never even heard about it until I researched this episode. Yeah, that's crazy. And the fact that it happened, you know, around... Uh, before and after Christmas, you'd think they would have made a movie about this already. Right. Well, I guess if there's any film producers listening to this. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, and because of the heroics on this day, it is estimated that there are over 1 million descendants from the refugees <sighs> alive in South Korea and around the world today. Oh my God. That gave me chills. That is so cool. Cause I love when you think about the ramifications of good actions yes like that's so astounding to hear one million who would not be here today if their family members had perished exactly wow isn't that just absolutely wild that's so cool so to me weirdos that is a christmas miracle that's a really beautiful one yeah thank you so on to story number two now so we're going to be talking about the NASA's Apollo 8 mission of okay. 1968. Mm-hmm. So this Christmas miracle occurred in outer space, by the way. <laughs> like the most recent Fast and Furious movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or there's probably been another one that's been released since then because they're just absurd. Vin Diesel, if you're hearing this, by the way, like shame on you for not making the movies about the Punic Wars and instead making Fast and Furious like 874. So I'm almost positive he's listening. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. So honestly, man, shame. <laughs> Andrew's disappointed in you, Vin Diesel. I'm really disappointed. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> so as with the SS Meredith victory story that we just listened to, yeah. we need a little background on what's happened between the United States and Russia in what was be known as the space race. And I'm sorry, guys, this one requires a little bit more backstory because there's a lot of like weird technical things and like broader themes I need to cover. Mm-hmm. So just keep that in mind. But I think this is really interesting. So I think the space race is fascinating. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. kind of why I wanted to get into it a little bit more. So World War II ended in 1945, right? Allied powers are victorious over the Axis. And as we know, um, but the relations between like the Western allies, mm-hmm. um, mainly in the U S and the U the, in the UK become frosty with the, the, their other ally, big ally, the Soviet union. Yeah. Frosty for sure. Frosty. <laughs> it gets a little chilly. Yes. So this of course would be known as the cold war. There frost. you go. That hence the frost. Yeah. It's, it gets a little chilly. Yeah. I like your version better. They should have called it the frosty war. The frosty war. That sounds more fun. It does sound a lot more fun. Yeah. The cold war sounds kind of boring. Yeah. 
It wasn't, but it, it wasn't. sounds boring. Yeah. Terrible marketing. We're going to rebrand it as the Frosty War. <laughs> Can we please? Yes. <laughs> we should have like a petition and <laughs> like, like <laughs> to rename it in history books. Yeah. The Frosty War. <laughs> that reminds me of how like every year in the United States reportedly um, during or not every year, excuse me, whenever there's a presidential election right. in the United States, apparently there's always at least like tens of thousands of write-in votes for Mickey Mouse. You heard it here first. Isn't folks. that crazy? Yeah, that is actually insane. That's like us trying to rename the Cold War the Frosty <laughs> yeah, War. I know. And going back to Frosty, we're going to heat it up for just a second here. The Soviets, they tested a nuclear bomb in 1949. And so now like the US and the Soviets have nuclear capabilities. Yeah. The British would follow suit, I think in the 50s. I didn't even write it in my notes because it doesn't matter. So, you know, everyone develops nukes. Not the greatest for promoting like non good stuff yeah i was gonna say like i was gonna say anxiety but it's like no it's like the opposite it's this like, pro- this promotes anxiety i agree like it's so stressful distressing like you're kind of like on edge when you really think about the nuclear capabilities around the world yeah 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 i just try not to think about it too much <laughs> so all the allies, the former allies, they will continue to advance their knowledge of nuclear weapons and soon have the ability to create nuclear explosions hundreds to even thousands of times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Oh my gosh. It's quite terrifying. Yeah. So you might be wondering, well, that's great, Andrew. That's super cheery. Yeah, this um, is very Christmassy. And <laughs> how does this even relate to the space race, let alone the Apollo 8 mission? It's a great and fantastic question. So you see the two powers, like we're also trying to create a means of delivery for these nuclear weapons, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically missiles, powerful ones that could travel large distances around the globe. Yeah. These would later be called intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs for short. Mm -hmm. And it didn't take long until one of these missiles was like used to launch something into outer space. Because Mm -hmm. of course they're like, wait a minute, I can send this around the world, but we can also launch stuff into space too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. So, in fact, the Soviet Union scientists created the R-7 Semyorka rocket and successfully tested it on August 21st, 1957, becoming the first ICBM ever used. Oh, wow. Yeah. About a month and a half later, the probe Sputnik 1 was launched into mm-hmm. space, thus propelling humanity like into the, the last or the final frontier. Yeah. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, it reminds me of when on Friends, Ross Geller dressed up as Sputnik for Halloween. Yeah, and it was like a potato spud. A spud with like little antenna on top. Sputnik. (laughs) Smart. And so from here on out, it's basically just finding the next goalpost and seeing which side could get there first between mainly the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So one of the first competitions was who could essentially crash shit into the moon and or send something into its atmosphere uh, in about like 1958, 1959. That's when you know men are in charge. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I saw this and I was like, oh my God, this is just... Let's see who can crash more shit into the moon. Yeah. That's a man's kind of It's kind of amazing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the Soviets had the Luna program, which successfully impacted on the moon. And the US had the Pioneer program, which eventually did send a satellite around the moon. So you also had the first mammals in space. Hmm. 
this one honestly just kind of hurts my heart. Yeah. And since this is just background info, we're just going to not get into it. Yeah. But there's that's part of the competition. Um, you know, one thing I'll just say is like the U.S. typically use chimps, whereas uh, Soviets use dogs. Yes. Like typically, not exclusively, but typically. So then on April 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became or made history becoming the first ever human in space. Wow. That's crazy to think about. That's such a baller like move too to be known as like the first guy ever in space. How scared do you think he was? Oh, he was probably terrified, but he's like glory. Yeah, but it's sort of that's it's so human to just have that drive to be like this is terrifying and I it's a good chance I'll die. Right. But I have to do it. Yeah. Because and, it has to be done. And he did it. Yeah. And I don't know if you can, if you've been noticing, but a theme is very apparent now. Um, Soviets are getting there first. Exactly. Yeah. The U.S. and the Western bloc was just behind in rocket technology compared to the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. The United States needed to catch up. And President Kennedy in the early 60s soon issues his famous proclamation that the U.S. would reach the moon before 1970. Mm -hmm. He was manifesting that. He manifested that big yeah. time. I mean, we really waited, you know, <laughs> if you guys like, this isn't actually part of the episode, but the Apollo 11 mission did finally land in the moon in July of 1969. Yeah. So, I mean, they were, they had a few months to spare, but not like a full year or anything. No, no. He was like right on the edge of what he had proclaimed. <laughs> it would have been better if we landed in like December. Mm -hmm. That would have been awesome. <laughs> I know. Maybe on your birthday. On my birthday. Or on Christmas. That would have been a double whammy. Oh my miracle. gosh. Yeah but they didn't. <laughs> they did not. Anyways. And I also forgot to mention that NASA was created in 1958, pretty much as a response to the Soviet Union making it to space first. Yeah. So great advancements are in the, like the U S or happening in the U S as well as NASA successfully launched both the Mercury and Gemini programs. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was that happened during like the end of the 1950s and into like the the early to mid 1960s before the launch of the Apollo program. Mm -hmm. And um, in 1967, both the Soviets and the U.S. are starting to face actually major setbacks. Yeah. So the U.S. ship Apollo One mm -hmm. exploded during a ground test. They're not supposed to do that. Yeah, and that was only a month before their planned launch date. Yeah, I feel like that would be quite a setback. It was a giant setback. And whereas the Soviet Soyuz 1 malfunctioned during re-entry into the atmosphere and crashed. Oof. Yeah, both tragedies killed everyone on board. Oh my god. So 1968 pressure was really mounting to put men onto the moon. Um, after all, the time was running out on JFK's plan, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it, at this point, it had only been slightly over a year since the Apollo 1 disaster. Mm. And there was major issues going on still with the spaceship, specifically the lunar module. Mm -hmm. Not to get too technical here, but the Apollo, what would be Apollo 8, is comprised of three major components. You have the command module, which is like the main portion, which is the cabin for the three astronauts. Yes. And this would be the only part that would actually return back to Earth. Yeah. The second is a service module, which um, provides propulsion, electrical power, oxygen, and water. Just basically like life-sustaining activities yes. or support activities. 
And then the lastly is the lunar module, which is part of the ship that would actually land on the moon right. and ascend from the moon's surface back to the other two modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to get into any more further explanation because it would just get a little bit boring. No, I feel like you illustrated that well. Yeah. Sorry, engineering uh, friends, but... Or your grandpa. Or my grandpa. He he literally worked on spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would be like, this is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, <going."> I know. <laughs> yeah, that's actually kind of wild. Um, but back to the issue here. The lunar module, the one that's actually supposed to land on the moon... It's important. <laughs> ...wasn't working. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when reviewed in June of 1968, there were over 100 significant defects found. Over 100 significant defects. That's wild too because you think of the level of pressure that you've shared here. They had like the most brilliant male minds. Well, there's some female. There's some, but they didn't really recruit as much, you right. know. They had some of the really, really smart people working on this, like all together with the shared goal. And right. you're still like a hundred errors right before you're supposed to go. That's crazy. Yeah. The lunar module, it's it's, it's not going to be ready until 1969. Mm-hmm. It's a big oof. Uh, there was a solution at hand though. So basically someone came up with the idea, why not send the other two modules attached to a rocket to the moon, enter its lunar orbit, mm-hmm. and then just come back to Earth? Okay. Because no one had ever been in another orbit of a celestial body before. Oh, okay. Except for Earth, obviously. So, the problem with that is the lunar module wasn't the only thing that was wrong. (laughs) Of course not. The Saturn V rocket that would actually take the spaceship into space was malfunctioning and had caused serious issues with earlier unmanned space flights. Oh my gosh, they are... Not getting a break here. No, it it was finally like eventually cleared on September 21st. And in December, after further testing had been finally completed, mm-hmm. the rocket was given like the, the double thumbs up. Okay. So the rocket's good to go. Yes. One thing's working. One thing's finally working. <laughs> Lunar module still out of commission, but the rocket we're still good on or we're good on. Okay. So the Apollo 8 mission would be the first time in human history that we would enter the orbit of another celestial object. I know I just mentioned that, but that's a huge deal. That's a giant deal. Um, Because this would also pave the way to humanity, um, sending people to not only the moon, of course, right? But giving us a blueprint on on ways to travel to other planets and celestial bodies. Yeah. That's a big deal. It's a giant deal. It would open up a lot, basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, this work is paving the way for like Elon Musk going to Mars or... Yes, you know, yes. I kind of The important about. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That almost like undermines my point. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so on December 21st, 1968, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders took off from Kennedy Space Center on Merritt Island, Florida Mm. for the moon. Dun, dun, dun. Later in the day, (laughs) they became the first humans to view the entire Earth at once as they traveled further and further from the planet. That's so cute. And that's when they noticed like, wait, it's all like blue. Yeah. Well, I'll get to that in a second, actually. So they were also the first humans to travel through the Van Allen radiation belts as well. Oh, wow. Where they actually received like little teeny doses of radiation. Yeah. 
but it's less than what an average re- person receives from just normal background radiation over the course of a year. So oh, okay. not like a ton. Yeah, nothing alarming. Right. It wasn't all smooth sailing though. So Borman had a particularly rough time on this trip. So oh. you see he had trouble sleeping and with, oh, I feel you Borman. Yeah, I know. With approval of NASA, he took a pill, like a little sleeping pill to pass out but instead it gave him nausea and diarrhea oh no in space in space let's just say there were little bits all over no the command module not little bits little bits they're how not... embarrassing and if you don't know what i'm talking about don't worry about it you don't need to know yeah, i was gonna say ask your mom or dad because <laughs> <laughs> anyways moving on <laughs> they finally though arrived in lunar orbit on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, where they became the first humans to actually see the moon up close and personal with their own eyes. The most unique Christmas Eve ever. I mean, could you ever... I feel like that would be the pinnacle of your life. Yeah, like, sorry kids. Yeah, sorry kids. Like, <laughs> like this is it. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's so interesting because I know we've watched a few shows now where... Like For All Mankind. Yeah, where they, uh, you know, center astronauts in a lot of the plots. And a, a common thing that you hear is that it's kind of like a high that you're chasing forever after yeah. that. And Ugh. nothing compares. Nothing. That's wild. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how amazing that must have looked from their point of view. Especially because... For them being the first, think of all of the adrenaline that's coursing through your body for so long. And then to like achieve the goal, the like influx of endorphins, like it it really would feel like you're high probably. Uh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Like genuinely can only imagine. That's so cool. It's interesting too, because they all describe the moon as devoid of color. Oh. Yeah. Like similar to that of plaster. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also witnessed for the first time in history an earth rise or the rise of earth over the moon. Oh my gosh. And in fact, William Anders took the iconic earth rise photo, which we'll post mm-hmm. on Instagram, mm-hmm. um, in which nature photographer Galen Rowell described as, quote, the most influential environmental photograph ever taken, end quote. Wow. Yeah. And also, if this wasn't just pre- impressive enough, they made a Christmas Eve television broadcast in which... Oh, how cool. Yeah. And in which they read the first 10 verses from the book of Genesis, uh, which became the most watched TV program ever at that point in time. I'm sure. That's what every family did. I'm sure. And it was actually really sweet, too, because the reason why they chose Genesis is because they're like, oh, well, this will translate well to like a lot of religions, mm-hmm. not just like Christianity. That's really sweet because yeah. the book of Genesis is in the Torah. It's in the Quran. Yeah. It's the beginning, right? Genesis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is the beginning of space. Space. For us. <laughs> so the astronauts would orbit the moon a total of 10 times before safely arriving um, back at Earth on December 27th. Oh my goodness. And... The entire like space program really just overcame enormous odds and persevered through like multiple challenges, right? To yeah. actually make this mission successful, especially before you know nine, the end of uh, the sixties, mm-hmm. and absolutely led to the Apollo Eleven mission. Right? Yeah, imagine being a part of that team. 
that made that happen. Yeah, and it's kind of wild too because we always talk about Apollo 11, right? We mm-hmm. landed on the moon, but this was vitally important to yeah. that. And they don't get probably the recognition they deserve unless you're just a huge space nerd. Yeah, right? which you kind of are a little bit of a space nerd. I'm a little bit, way yeah. more of a history nerd, guys, so don't worry, but <laughs> space does fascinate me. But all this to say that this is 100% a Christmas miracle in my book. Yes, that's so cool. That's a different kind of Christmas miracle from the first one. Very. But it is very inspiring at the very least. Like we're capable of so much. So the first one and what will be this next one, the third one are kind of like people coming together in times of crisis mm-hmm. to the the two stories, the first and this third one will be different, but to kind of like either help people mm-hmm. or just to find the joy in times of terrible crisis. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the second one was really about just pushing, pushing past the, the frontiers limits, yeah. Yeah, of like what people thought were even possible, mm-hmm. right? Like early, earlier in this century, like literally less than 70 years prior to this, there was a, a New York times article saying that humans would never uh, fly. Yes. So not only were we flying, yes, but like we were making it into outer space. It's wild. That same century. Like, Mm -hmm. that is insane. It's also, I guess, going back to my comment about imagine being on the team that made that happen, it shows you how much we're capable of, yes, but that we are capable of those things when we work together. Yeah. there's These things aren't ever done by just one person. No one ever does it alone. There's always a team. It always requires many people coming together. Right. You might have leaders that have like great forces of personality, but they'll also be probably the first person to tell you that like they couldn't do it without their team. Exactly. Yeah. So now on to the last story. Yay. Christmas miracle number three. Yes. The Christmas truce of 1914 during World War One. So just with the other two, we got to set the scene. This is the Western Front 1914. Okay. So the year is 1914. Oh my God. I'm shocked. I know. Right. (laughs) Europe is engulfed in what would be the most devastating conflict it had ever seen at that point in time. Right. The Western Mm. front stretching from the North sea to the Swiss border is basically just a hellish landscape of trenches, barbed wire and mud. Soldiers from both sides, the Allies, primarily France and the UK, and Mm -hmm. the Central Powers led by Germany, are dug in facing each other across a desolate, like, no man's land. That sounds like hell. It literally, like, if you look at pictures of it, it does look like hell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Months into the war, the initial wave of enthusiasm that this would be, like, a quick victory from both sides, right? Right. That's gone. That's just completely faded away. Yeah. Both sides are realizing the grim reality of trench warfare it sucks yes in fact like it sucked so hard that like the germans in world war ii like invented an entirely new way of fighting because <laughs> so they're like they we avoid... can't do that again <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so now we're gonna fast forward a little bit to a cold wet december of 1914 mm-hmm so soldiers are huddled in their trenches, dealing obviously not just with the enemy, but with hunger, cold, and disease, and lack of morale, to be honest. So much disease. So letters from home are just like a lifeline to mm-hmm. like the decline in, uh, in morale, and thoughts of peace and normalcy are like pretty much at this point like a distant dream. Mm-hmm. So back in Britain, even like 101 British women suffragettes even wrote an open letter 
to the women of Germany and Austria because things were so bad. They were basically saying like, hey, like, what can we do to stop this? This is this is bullshit. Like, wow. honestly, to like put it like bluntly. I, I think it makes sense that the women address the women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this garnered a ton of support across like everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Pope Benedict the 15th, he begged, begged both sides for a truce in early December, um, but yeah. neither agreed. Oh my goodness. So things on the front though were a little different. Um, don't misunderstand me guys. Like there was brutal, bitter fighting, um, especially like on the Eastern front, but on the Western front as well. Mm-hmm. Like it was not like, it was a hellish landscape. Like I described very dangerous. Um, and even on the Western front, uh, fighting got particularly bad between the French and German sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also a different sort of phenomenon happening as well. And this what would be the fraternization, God, that's a tough word to say, mm-hmm. between enemy forces, basically the two sides becoming bros. Mm. Um, it started as far back as early November between particularly the English and the German forces on the Western Front. Okay. Um because you can see the trenches were close to each other. So they're so yeah, they're close. Aiming at each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're so close that you could yell back and forth. Like they could yes. hear each other. And Communic- and this is really interesting because communication essentially became more democratized and easily accessible mm-hmm. instead of like your typical military command of like, you know, up the ranks yes. and to the other side, down the ranks, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, because you're literally all in the trenches together. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. I could shout to, if I was like an English guy, I could shout to a German general yes. on the other side if he was in the trench. Yeah. And I could be a private, right? And think of how when it's not, awful and terrible and there's active um violence going on like all the waiting in between think of how boring it was because you're always on edge you're always on edge and you're cold and you're sick and you're hungry god your <laughs> your immune system shot your adrenals are done for so any sort of distraction must have been welcome oh yeah especially yeah. like a positive one at that mm-hmm. you're probably begging for that mm-hmm. so Back to this kind of fraternization like phenomenon, um, singing and playing music became more common. Mm. (laughs) And especially as the holiday season really came into swing. So the early hours of Christmas Day 1914 on the Western Front. So across like the just frozen battlefields, something remarkable starts to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, As kind of like as the darkness is kind of rising or is falling, if it, because there's some reports that started happening on Christmas Eve. Yeah. So, um, regardless, the sound of gunfire starts to fade. Okay. And it starts to be replaced by another sound <gasps> Christmas carols. Oh. So, from the German trenches, still knocked or silent <laughs> night in English echoes throughout the air, and mm. the British troops, intrigued, uh, move and respond. And then something even more extraordinary starts to happen. A few German soldiers emerge from their trenches and start approaching the Allied lines. Wow. Calling out Merry Christmas in English. Um, and uh, they're in no man's land. Oh, uh, I'm going to cry. Like the fact that the, the fact that they did that must mean they had so much faith that they weren't going to get shot. And even then there's probably like, it's still a possibility. Yeah. You have to be very brave, very courageous to, be vulnerable like that. Exactly. You it, it really do. Mm-hmm. 
So initially, the English especially were a little bit skeptical, but soon enough, soldiers from both sides are climbing out of their trenches, meeting in no man's land. Mm-hmm. Um, they're shaking hands, they're exchanging gifts, cigarette, foods, uh, food, souvenirs, booze. Yeah. Uh, they share stories and photos of like loved ones back at home. Mm-hmm. And in some areas, like the truce even allows both sides to kind of collect and bury their dead. Mm. And most famously, there are accounts of multiple, not just one, but multiple impromptu football matches or soccer uh, between the soldiers making makeshift balls and uh, boots for caps and goalposts. Wow, because you know what? They're all a bunch of teenage boys. Yeah, or like early 20s. Yeah, they're they're young men, and that playing you know football back home with their friends was how they connected and in both cultures exactly so why not do it here i mean wow that would be one of the most i think amazing things to witness firsthand Mm -hmm. if i could like time travel to be like a fly on the wall type of thing that'd be so moving it's it's insane um i mean it's just like a shared like moment of humanity amidst like the horrors of war a really really horrific war yeah and again it's just it's young people i think that's what always strikes me because it shows you how much you know hating and being told like that's your enemy is something that's taught right because these boys just want to hang out and smoke cigarettes and play football just dudes being dudes yeah (laughs) that's all they want yeah i mean and in the midst of what would be at this time, like the worst war in human history. Yes. To be able to find that desire for human connection and to lean into it is incredible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and what's kind of crazy about this is like the spontaneous act of peace wasn't universally like observed among the Western front. Yeah. It was actually never sanctioned by military command yeah. on either side. Which is a big deal in the military. That's a huge deal. You gotta get deal. approval for everything. And they were just like, nah, we're just gonna do it. Yeah. So the um, as Christmas Day ends though, like the men return to their trenches and the mm. truce unofficially concludes and the war resumes, which does kind of mu- suck. It must hurt that much more. But... Uh, this incredible event, like the Christmas truce of 1914, like shows us that despite like vast differences and like brutal realities of war and like the desire of like for peace, for connection, for understanding is just so deeply ingrained in us as humans. Um, I mean that the story just resonates with us today because that, that feeling is those feelings, I guess are so universal. Yeah. They are being told that that is your enemy they don't talk the way you talk. Right. They don't have the same traditions that you do. They're in a different uniform. And their humanity like pierced through all of that. Yeah. And isn't it, it's kind of funny too that they would say these things because like culturally English and German are, they they have a common ancestor, like even post like the Roman empire. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of, it's just ironic. Yeah. I mean, not that that really means much, but at the same time it's, it's, it just goes to show like this hatred or like the learning of hatred it's is arbitrary. It's so arbitrary and honestly kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. Always. It really is. And honestly, in my book, this is a big Christmas miracle. Yeah. That's a beautiful one. Do you remember 
I think it was a few years ago. I don't remember what company made a commercial about it. Yes. And there's also a heavy metal band from like, I think <laughs> Europe, Sweden, possibly. I honestly don't know. I think it's, they're called Sabaton. Uh-huh. Anyways, my dad really loves them. Okay. So shout out dad. How um, is this connected? They have a music video of, of the soccer game. Oh, really? Yeah. That's badass. Uh, Scandinavia is definitely into heavy metal, so Sweden's a good guess. Yeah, I, I'm guessing it's a Nordic band. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. But, so Stephanie, of these three stories, which one's your favorite? <laughs> Ooh, okay. I love them all, like for different reasons. <laughs> oh my God, that's so adorable. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I think actually maybe the first one. Oh, yeah. Because I'd never heard of it. I had never heard of it either. And I think. And it's. I don't know. If, I, I don't. I think this last one's my my favorite. And it's, it's basic, I know. But. No, it's not basic. They're all like really cool and beautiful and inspiring for different reasons. That's true. But I just love like. Especially with how painful the world is nowadays and we're so plugged into a lot of that pain unfortunately i think it's so nice to highlight the good parts of humanity yeah i agree being a human doesn't mean that we always have to be trash you know (laughs) sometimes we can be cool too sometimes we can be cool most of the time we will be trash (laughs) yeah most of the time the planet would agree most of the time we're trash (laughs) no this was awesome i love this so much for a christmas episode thank you for sharing these stories well thank you for listening and weirdos if you're listening on Spotify, you can comment on which story you enjoyed the most. I'm, yeah, let us know. I'm really interested in hearing what you guys have to say. Mm-hmm. So lastly, yes, here are my sources for the episode. Very important. Really cool one, the Imperial War Museums uh, coming from Britain. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. History.com, NASA, because of course. Yeah, because they're smart. Space.com 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 think of the smarty pants that bought that domain they must have bought it probably like 1994 and we're just like shit i gotta get space.com it's gonna be huge (laughs) it it really is like virtual real estate in a way yeah um and then oh the bbc and then lastly of course wikipedia yay thank you again andrew for sharing these wonderful christmas miracles with us Thank you, weirdos, for listening to the podcast, for listening to this episode. Wherever you are, we hope you have a very happy, healthy, and Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas, and also have a Happy New Year. This will be our last episode of 2023. Last episode of 2023, and like I said, we're going to start 2024 with a banger. Yeah, in fact, we have an episode coming out for you guys on January 1st, 2024. So So get ready. Yeah, it's going to be wild. Until next time, weirdos. Adios. Rolling, rolling. Rolling with the homies.